Welcome to the podcast of the Center for Asian American Christianity at Princeton Theological Seminary, a space for ongoing dialogue among Asian American scholars, ministry leaders, and activists. Hello, everyone. My name is Dr. David Chow. I'm the director of the Center for Asian American Christianity at Princeton Theological Seminary. Today is my great privilege to host a conversation with Dr. Helen Jin Kim, who is the Assistant Professor of American Religious History at the Candler School of Theology at Emory University. She is the author of Race for Revival, How Cold War South Korea Shaped American Evangelical Empire. Welcome, Helen. Great, thanks so much, David, for having me here on this podcast. I'm so excited for everything PTS is doing uh, with the Asian American Christian community, and I'm really excited to be here. Awesome. When we were emailing each other, I think this is a couple of weeks ago, you mentioned you had just gotten your manuscript off to the publisher for your book. So I was really hoping to take this opportunity to learn more about your book in particular, your research interests, and also your background and story. So maybe we could just begin there. Give us some of the, uh, the intellectual narrative and personal narrative that fed into the book. And eventually I do wanna talk about the book, but tell us how you got onto the subject and topic of your, of your research. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so the book is formally and officially in publication right now. I saw a copy of the cover for it and um, it's gonna be out. My editorial assistant just told me it's gonna be out. January, maybe February of 2022. Congratulations, that's super exciting. Thank you, I appreciate it. Um, It's been a long time in the making and um, that kind of goes to addressing your question, which is that there are so many different origin points for my interest in this work. Um, And some of it dates all the way back to my years in college, (laughs) which is about half my life ago (laughs) at this point. Um, So I write about that a bit in the preface of the book, Um, just my mind becoming sort of seized with questions that have kind of germinated um, since then and has led to different kinds of research projects, including this one. Um, But one thing I don't write about in the book that I do want to mention as an origin point is that in college, I read um, Rudy Busto's essay on Asian American evangelicals. And it's it's a smart piece, um, Rudy Busto at UCSB. And he called um, Asian American evangelicals, I just you know, it, it really stood out to me. He called Asian American evangelicals the model moral minority. And that phrase really stood out to me because he's playing off of this idea of Asian Americans as the model minority, but also this idea of evangelicals as forming the moral majority, right? So betwixt and between these, this racial kind of stereotype and then this political formation, he's thinking about where do Asian American evangelicals fit? And so he calls them the model moral minority and he talks about, and there at that time, um, there was this kind of fervor for research about why are so many Asian Americans joining evangelical Christian fellowships, right? And I don't know if you have friends or you were part of an evangelical Christian fellowship, but it seemed to me at the time that almost all of my Asian American Christian friends 
were part of university or campus crusade or some other analogous uh, group. And so um, I just had a lot of questions about um, these communities and I was fascinated that scholars were writing about them. Um, not just Rudy, but also Rebecca Kim, her book, God's Whiz Kids, such a smart book as well on Korean American evangelicals in these parachurch ministries. And I, I wanted to learn more, especially I was I'm interested in the term evangelical, which I had learned in college. I didn't know that term before then. And I thought it was such an interesting term. It fascinated me because I knew that it was a religious term, but it also had political connotations, right? So then where do Asian Americans fit in this story, right? Um, they don't quite fit in with the Christian right and conservative politics, but it's not as if you can kind of divorce that term evangelical away from those kind of political imaginations about, okay, speculations about what people's politics might be if they identify as evangelical. So um, yeah, Asian American evangelicals, I realize, you know, don't fit in this exact kind of white evangelical Christian framework, but what is their relationship to it? Right. Um, I think Janelle Wong's most recent book is exceptionally clarifying in answering this question. She's a political scientist. Um, and I know she's um, been at one of your conferences and she talks about how Asian American evangelicals are voting similarly, but also differently from white evangelicals in the contemporary moment. So there's just this betwixt and between kind of narrative. And I think I thought a very racially and politically and religiously complicated narrative that I wanted to learn more about. And uh, it just, it took me on a long journey, especially as a historian, because so much of those works like Rudy Busto, Rebecca Kim, Janelle Wong are very focused on the contemporary moment. I wanted to know as a historian what the long story was, right? What happened before the eighties or the nineties, right? And then it took me onto this transnational story. It took me to Asia. It took me to focus on the Korean War and the Cold War. Um, and the book is situated um, in the 1950s to 80s. And um, it tells kind of that previous story. And it is a transnational story. So um, I could go on and on about different points of origin, but um, it, it, it broadly connects to these complicated ideas around religion, race, and politics. That's a lovely um, setting of the stage. I have so many questions I could follow up, but I, I, don't, I don't think I will. Perhaps we can save that for a second podcast, because I know at, at Candler, not only are you an award-winning instructor and teacher, but you also care deeply about your students and their formation. Um, and you're a mentor to many of the um, Asian and Asian American and other students at Candler. And part of what I'm hearing in just your, the kind of biographical story going all the way back to college. And what I, what I wanna bookmark for a future conversation is to hear about your intellectual formation and the people who encouraged you to pursue this project because I don't think that it's easy work to center Asian American uh, Christian faith and practice within the guild of 
American religious history, one as a minor, as a kind of a, a double minority yourself, and it takes a village to build a Helen Jin Kim. So I would love to hear more of the kind of mentoring and wisdom and experience from others that you drew upon to create um, the, the research program that you've created, because this story going from Busto to Kim to Wong, um, that's a that's a fascinating intellectual journey that led you to the to Cold War Korea. So let's pivot to Cold War Korea and talk. Let's get into the book. So tell me more about some of the main claims of the book and what your research discovered. I'm really curious. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, I I'd be happy to have a longer conversation about kind of that trajectory. And I will say just briefly though that you know, the scholars who have come before me were so formative. I mean, you mentioned, I mean, I mentioned those three um, and, you know, you did a podcast with Russell. Russell was so crucial. And um, then the college thesis that I wrote on Asian American liberation theology. I mean, the figures that I interviewed for that, uh, Roy Sano, Lloyd Walkie, Paul Nagano, all of them were so formative as well. And I will say that it hasn't been an easy journey to be a minority and to write about minoritized subjects um, in the field of American religious history. I mean, we're really just starting to open up a broader conversation, especially as it relates to Asian Americans in, in Asia Pacific in my subfield. And actually that connects well to your question about the book itself. Right, because a crucial intervention that I'm making in this book is for my field of American religious history, you know, those who study history, American history, religion, politics, race, for us to seriously center the narratives of those who are on the Pacific Rim, America as it relates to Asian Pacific, and therefore also the history of Asian Americans. Right, so. Um, a historian Laurie Maffley Kipp is, you know, has written about how, you know, we don't do that enough as American religious historians. We we talk a lot about the Puritans, and then we also will talk about the South, especially you know Christianity, American slavery. But when we get to the West Coast, um, or even subjects who aren't black or white, we kind of fall off a little bit in the storytelling that we're doing. And so my book is all about, um, you know, pushing the field to take those narratives seriously, right? So um, as I was doing this research, I went into the archives and I discovered, and this is the core part of the project's thesis is that Koreans were core to the making of modern evangelical America, right? So you can't understand the story of modern evangelical America without understanding the Korean presence in that story. Um, pause, pause. I just want to, yeah. I just want to repeat what you just said. Koreans are core to the making of modern evangelical America. That is a startling thesis. As someone who um, did some historical theological work, and I've read Mark Knoll and George Marsden mm -hmm. and sort of, yep. um, Great. yeah, I've done, I've dug around Puritan, uh, er, yep. early American history, like your statement, like, and I've read these works mm -hmm. 
it's it's non <laughs> sorry to say it's non-existent in some of those works mm -hmm. that so this is a, a very productive intervention in the field of american religious history what helen jin kim is saying about korea is core to the making of modern evangelical america fascinating thesis please tell me more yeah, I mean, you mentioned Noel and Marsden, really important historians for American yeah. religious history in general, Absolutely. American evangelical history in particular, and I, you know, really mind their works as well. And um, yeah, Korean or Asian, Asian American presence isn't a presence in those works mostly, right? Um, so a history, for instance, on Fuller that Marsden has written, um, you know, Korean presence actually is there, um, or Asian presence was there from its very founding, right? So we, you know, we need to know um, that story, and I touch upon it a bit um, in chapter two of my book, uh, but we just need to know more. And, um, you know, it's not just um, those two historians, but also um, Grant Wacker, who I've um, been in conversation quite a bit with, he's written a lot about Billy Graham, and in his book, America's Pastor, Graham, Graham's largest crusade um, he talks about is in South Korea, of all places. And that's a big part of my project as well. And um, that's not an accident, right, actually, that Graham's largest crusade is in 1972 in Korea. This is a story that's been in the making since the 50s, right? So I go, I start in um, the 1950s with the outbreak of the Korean War and show how America and Korea became so tightly intertwined um, politically because of the war, but also religiously. And that's how Koreans become core to the making of modern evangelical America. So an example is, um, and that might be of particular interest to those at PTS, is that Kyungjik um, Han or Han Kyungjik Moksanim, um, you all have the chair and the Han chair that I think Sang Yun Lee occupied, right? Yeah. Yeah, so uh, Reverend Han is a core part of my book. And I talked about how he was actually the one who came up with the idea of creating World Vision. And then he passed that idea along to Bob Pierce. And in conversation, they created uh, World Vision, which is the largest evangelical humanitarian organization in the world today. And I tell that Korean narrative and what's unique about the way I tell about it, because David Schwartz has also talked about this in his uh, recent book, I, you know, Facing West, and it's in my dissertation as well. Um, but I use Korean sources to tell it. I tell it not just Reverend Han, but also the very people uh, who were martyred um, and who became widows and it was those people who are part of his congregation that they want to support. And that's how they created World Vision. So I tell that kind of not just top level elite religious elite story, but also at the ground level, the people who were dying and, and therefore that's why they created World Vision and using Korean sources. So you can't tell that story of World Vision without the Korean War, um, without Korean presence, but also I think this is also really important um, is that there's also Korean erasure. So how did that story get erased? I also talk about that. There's a reason we don't know that story in popular imagination. Um, there's, a, there's a racialized dimension to the story 
that's responsible for the erasure of Korean presence in the making of modern evangelical marriage. Say more, say more. This is really interesting because you're, you're right. Like you mentioned, there's been a Korean presence at Fuller Seminary from its founding. Um, I didn't know that. I actually have lived, I lived in Pasadena for a while. I spent some time in, in Fuller's library, a Hubbard library. It's a beautiful library. I remember when I would study at Hubbard library it outlooks on a road where I would see Korean tour buses unloading 40 to 50 Korean tourists who would have Fuller Seminary as a stop in, in their Korean tour. I was okay. like, wow, this is a first seeing a seminary as a tour stop right, for a right. Korean travel bus which yeah. your point about its uh, founding moments now makes sense to me. But surely this story about um, Kyung Chik Han, Bob Pierce, World Vision, besides Swartz and your work, it is not widely known. And so this is important mm. ground you're making with respect to the politics of narration. Who gets yeah. to tell what stories that privilege the agency yeah. and, and kind of powers yeah. of, certain, in, of yeah. certain types of people? Yes, that's a crucial point, David. I really want to underscore that point, um, the politics of narration and the power that narrators have in telling stories, right? And whose stories we get to tell. And um, I found that um, even with the story of World Vision, that there is a process of erasure in storytelling. So even um, with uh, that founding narrative, um, you'll see in chapter one of my book how the re very record keeping of that story, that origin story, is primarily then told as a Bob Pierce story. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that when you record that story um, as primarily an American story, and then you have the power to uplift that story, you know, as the one who has the resources to tell the story. Um, then yeah, then you're not going to be able to tell that transnational, those transnational dimensions. And, and Bob Pierce himself, for instance, was um, really, really active in creating um, kind of documentaries, uh, writing all kinds of tracks. Um, he loved to write and produce and all of that. But I show you that um, in a film that he created that's very loosely based on this or World Vision origin story, um, how, Reverend Han isn't, isn't in the story. <laughs> He's not in the documentary. And this is my interpretation of, um, this is an analysis of Dead Men on Furlough, which as you'll see in the chapter, is all about Reverend, um, it references Reverend Han as well as the two, the person who was martyred and also widowed and that's part of the founding story of World Vision. But the way in which it's documented in that documentary is Reverend Han never makes an appearance, right? So it's through uh, representations, right? It's how we represent these narratives and then how those narratives get circulated. That's part of the process of how we forget what actually happened. <laughs> and so it's really important for me and for my book to show not only the Korean presence in the story, but also the process of how that became erased, right? And why we don't know it anymore and why it's not in our popular memory. That's awesome. No, that's, that's such important work. And I think part of, part of what I'm seeing from you, Helen, is as a Korean American uh, historian, you have 
eyes to see and ears to hear the fissures and gaps in the tellings of the story, right? And your language facility and ability to access Korean language archives to supplement your instincts um, is part of what makes your book project so important. I appreciate that, David. Um, I do think that language really matters. So spending time over in Korea and getting the Korean people's perspective and then realizing that the American story has all of these connections abroad as well, right? So, you know, the story of Fuller, let's say, or the story of World Vision, um, you know, these are, they're like local American stories to us, but they have so many deep transnational connections. So mm -hmm. when you follow those linkages, you're going to find that there's a whole archive in a different country that tells the story back to us, right? And it, it'll tell it possibly in a different way. And that's what I found when I went to Korea, did the archival research, um, did a lot of my analysis through Korean sources and also did oral histories with people who are still living and are part of my story and hearing their perspective, right? So for some people like with Pearl Vision and say, of course, obviously it was founded in Korea. I mean, that's sort of just kind of commonplace knowledge for them. But then the, the, the ability to then um, tell answer why then why don't a lot of people know about that and why is the story of American evangelicalism primarily kind of a local or American or even sometimes primarily white story that's something that then for me as a professional historian I feel responsible to address that right because my subjects that's not their job you know let's unless they're a professional historian um they're not spending all day thinking about that. So for me, I see that as my job to yep. put those pieces together. Yep. So you've, you've identified, you know, snippets of major American evangelical figures like Billy Graham and his largest, his largest crusade in 1972 mm -hmm. in Korea. You've talked about Kunchik Han, Reverend Han, and, and 19, his relationship. Actually, with, actually, it would have been 1973. Yeah. 1973. Got it. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. You're a historian. You got to correct me on the dates. <laughs> <laughs> I, I might have mentioned 72. I have a big revival that I talk about in 72 too. So 72, 73, 74 are really crucial for my book. Um, yeah. Interesting. So, yeah. So I want to return back to that main thesis that you were uh, stating about how Koreans are core to the development of modern evangelical America, and you're, you're using these case studies with Billy Graham and World Vision. Say more about the larger thesis and how you came to arrive at it. Yeah, so, I mean, part of it was that I just, I actually started with Campus Crusade and realized that um, Campus Crusade's first international partner and first non-white partnership was with a Korean. Um, that's Reverend Jun Gong Kim, and that happened because he was at Fuller in the 1950s, right? So that history of um, immigration in the 19th, Asian immigration um, needs to be told as well, right? How did Korean students come over to America to study? So that's chapter two of my book. And so I just started pulling threads from there and I just realized, oh, there's more to the story. You know, that's basically what happened. I just started there looked at the archives and noticed that there was also this world vision presence and then noticed also there was this BGEA presence. And then 
discovered that actually at Graham's largest crusade, all three of those parachurch organizations were present. They were kind of helping to lead the effort there in 1973. And it became a whole story. <laughs> so they're connected to each other. And so it's not just the you know Campus Crusade being connected to Korea. It's also that these three organizations and more of them, and I want more researchers to do more research on this um, and continue to expand the story, but that's a connected story. And so the way it's connected is actually because Americans were able to travel over to Korea uh, much more readily because of the outbreak of the Korean War. And then by the same token, Koreans, that's what opened up Korean immigration between 1950 and 1965 before the Hart-Seller Act, right? It's Korean War. That period is a Korean War or post-Korean War immigration period. And people who are connected to the US military, especially military wives, um, orphans, um, are able to immigrate to the US. And then they also make um, some exceptions, right? Because this is a period of Asian exclusion in terms of immigration. Um, they're able to make some exceptions also for students. And that's how so many students from Korea uh, get to study at religious institutions like Fuller. And then also I talk about Bob Jones. Bob Jones is a religious institution, a Christian institution that um, educated a lot of Asians since its founding. <laughs> so it excluded um, African-Americans from being educated there until 1972. And that's a big story that Randall Balmer has also talked about and how that was core to the rise of the Christian right. But historically, it allowed Asians to be educated at that institution. So mm -hmm. Asian inclusion was a core part to also the racial exclusion, kind of the anti-Black story of an institution like Bob Jones. I'm, we don't have to spend a lot of time on Bob Jones, but tell me, it seems, hmm, it's interesting that Bob Jones would reject Black students, but accept Asian students. Can yeah. you just say a little bit more about that before yeah, returning yeah. back to your, your main narrative? Yeah, of course. Um, I think it's part of, you know, Bob Jones, um, as many of us know, was an institution that came out of the fundamentalist strain of the fundamentalist modernist controversy, um, was founded, you know, shortly after the fundamentalist modernist controversy, and became kind of this hub for white fundamentalists, right? And um, it sort of stuck to its guns uh, with racial segregation, especially as it pertained to African-Americans. But um, throughout the 50s, um, 60s and beyond, uh, Asian presence was a core part of its educational program. And so my, my interpretation of that is that core to kind of these uh, white fundamentalist racial politics is not only Black exclusion, but also Asian inclusion. Hmm. A lot of us think that a, the presence and the inclusion of Asians is this kind of way to possibly kind of circumvent white supremacist politics. But actually the inclusion of racial minorities, and in this case, especially in the 50s, the inclusion of and the Asian presence at uh, Bob Jones, it helped to mask it's kind of racist uh, admissions policies, right? So we have to think about 
racial politics and kind of these kind of um, comparative racial politics is important for us to think through, right? How are uh, whites relating to Asians and Asians to Blacks and Blacks to Asians and, and all of these dimensions have to be examined, right? And so, yeah, Asian inclusion was a core part to how Bob Jones upheld its um, white supremacist politics. Well, this is part of the, um, the ether in immigration politics in the 50s leading up to the 60s, where America is fighting wars in Korea against the communists. America is fighting wars in Vietnam against the communists. The Japanese uh, are saying to Americans, you guys are just as uh, imperialistic. Look at, look at um, your Jim Crow laws in the Southern mm -hmm. states. And so America realizes it's got a, 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 a publicity problem. Yes. You know, they're claiming to be a beacon of democracy and freedom yes. and justice when in fact exactly. they're racist to the core. And so what does it do? It, the Hart-Seller Act of 1965, well, let's let in a, a smidgen of Asians um, and, and kind of people from south of the border under these really specific conditions mm -hmm. um, as a way to repair its image abroad. And mm -hmm. it seems like that could be an explanation for what's going on with Bob Jones is, yeah, you know, we don't have to say we're anti-Black because look, we can promote inclusion of Asians. And so the Asians are kind of part of this um, complex state of affairs being pawned and played against other minorities. Yeah, so that's it's a, that's a really helpful reference to kind of that whole Cold War civil rights um, history there. And yeah, I mean, Cold War Orientalism, sort of this idea that you would include Asians and that including Asians somehow, you know, would publicize American democracy as kind of a racial democracy, a racially equal democracy. That image of using Asians um, for that work is definitely kind of the history that my own book um, draws upon. Right. But I talked specifically, how did that work for religious institutions? Yeah. Right. Yeah. You know, and part of it um, is about the process of conversion. Right. So the conversion narratives that emerge from within Bob Jones or Fuller, um, how did Koreans see themselves as suddenly part of these um, institutions? Not only because of the kind of racial situation that they were in transnationally but also religiously, right? Kind of really feeling at home within this heart-centered religion in, within American fundamentalism, right? Feeling that sense of kinship because of religion, right? That kind of close-knit, kind of spiritually intimate, existentially significant uh, relationship that Koreans like um, at Bob Jones you know, develop that also gets kind of embroiled into these racial um, dimensions, also these political dimensions of Cold War Orientalism. Yeah, no, this is, yeah. I, I, I think your, your focus on religious institutions is important and cutting edge. I am curious, now that you've really piqued my interest on many, many levels, you've identified Koreans migrating to the US to get theological education from the 50s onwards, You've identified certain institutions like Fuller, which is on the West Coast in California. So maybe Fuller has some ease of access, perhaps, because it's just further west in, in the US. This Bob, Bob Jones part of the story, I was not aware of. So that's fascinating in and of itself. 
what happened to the mainline seminaries in the U.S.? Do you have analogous situations where mainline seminaries were recruiting or inviting or as hospitable to Korean migrants or not? Right, yeah. I think the mainline story isn't one that's a core part of my book, right? So actually, I think um, there's a new book that's coming out um, titled Before the Religious Right, and it's about, uh, it's a mainline history, and I haven't read it yet, but um, I think that, you know, possibly looking at a book like that and then being able to see how that's kind of a parallel story that's being told um, because he's also thinking about it transnationally, the story. So I think I think it's important to be able to put pe- like put the pieces together because I'm telling a primarily evangelical story. Um, but I will say that um, other theological institutions, not just fundamentalist and evangelical ones, are also educating um, Koreans, right? So that story has to be told. Um, But I will say that what is different in the post-World War II period with kind of, you know, evangelicals, I'm going to put these in scare quotes, evangelical and mainline institutions, is that they're developing different ideas about what it means to engage in world evangelization, right? So this is where the world Christianity story is so important and the global mission story is so important because Mainline versus evangelical, again, in scare quotes, are developing different ideas about, you know, the decolonized world, right? And the decolonization process. What's the relationship? What's our responsibility to um, non-Western people and Christians who are, you know, nationalists and are trying to overthrow these kind of colonial legacies, right? Um, we know, we understand from the World War II period that there's this kind of Western kind of colonial stain on Western Christian missions. What's our responsibility to that narrative, right? And evangelicals, fundamentalists, mainline institutions are are they developing different theories and ideas about mission, right? And that's a big difference, right? And so we have to do the research to understand um, how that that kind of world-making vision differed in these institutions and then therefore their relationship to non-Westerners, including Asians and Koreans, right? What I will say with the evangelicals and fundamentalists that I study is that for them, that history, they were unbothered by that history actually because such a devotion to an interpretation of the Great Commission as being absolutely necessary, absolutely literal to make all, basically to evangelize the whole world. That vision is not, it's not something that they believe should be revised, right? Based on, based on the history of this kind of World War II history of Christianity and colonization. I mean, that's just, that was probably seen as a mistake, but that doesn't mean that God's vision and God's call, um, the biblical call can change. That can't change, right? And so our our travel across the world, and especially because America is still engaging the world, especially through its Cold War politics, um, we have to go, right? It's not a choice. So um, that's a difference. 
Right. And that's why that global vision is really important for my, for my project. Right. You mentioned um, at the start of the podcast conversation, how you were looking kind of in, in sort of one direction of how Korean Christians have helped shape modern American evangelicalism. This latter part of our conversation, it also sounds like um, American evangelicalism has helped shape Korean Christianity. Mm-hmm. And you're looking at how complex this sort of mutual dependence is. And you referenced politically the, the larger structural uh, relationship of U.S. kind of uh, imperial interests in the Pacific Rim and Korea's vulnerability as a, as a, as a nation state post Japanese colonizing and, and empire building. Mm-hmm. These create a condition in which uh, Korea and US political and religious interests come together. That seems to be part of the narrative you're wanting to describe. Absolutely. I mean, in order for me, what's really been important in terms of the religious history that I'm trying to tell, because it is primarily a religious history, is that larger geopolitical context, right? And I I don't want to make, I don't, it's really important for me for to just to say that religious historians have to really take those geopolitical contexts seriously, right? Because um, it's so intertwined. We can't we can't know this kind of religiously intertwined story without understanding kind of the political dimensions to that story as well, right? And it's it's and it's part of how. So we, as historians, we talk about the constructedness of our past, right? And that, you know, we can't take any of the past for granted. It, things happen because sort of events were contingent upon each other, right? And so that political context, that close relationship between the U.S. and Korea that develops after Japanese colonization is so important for understanding the religious narrative. And I think that's why it's not an accident that um, in the contemporary moment, American, I think it's American, Korean missionaries, Koreans are sending out the most missionaries in the world per capita, right? And also just in sheer numbers, it's number one is American missionaries first, number two is Korean missionaries. And you can't understand, that's such a anomaly for Korean history Right, a, a country that has historically Confucian and Buddhist to then post 1950 and then to the contemporary moment have so many Christian missionaries. That's a story that has to be solved and understood um, through the, un, also understanding this larger geopolitical context. Um, yeah, so uh, there's another point that I just, I just thought of um, in reference to your earlier question about the mainline. I just wanted to add that um, as part of the story that I tell, though it's primarily an evangelical story, I will say that there are mainline Christians who are really active in Korea, but I, this is part of the world-making part, is that they're really involved with um, the United Nations. And that's something, that's some, trying to connect Korean Christians to the United Nations is a core part of the mainline story, but it's not part of the evangelical story, okay? Because they're just rejecting actually the global politics of the United Nations, at least the, the actors that are featured in my book, right? So this whole narrative of human rights is part of the mainline, 
and its connection to Korea, but not for the evangelicals. So, I mean, that's, they may be thinking about how do we uplift people and they want the best for um, Koreans, but they're not primarily using the United Nations language of human rights, right? So anyway, there could just so much more to be said about this story. So um, yes, but I know you have other questions. Yeah, so the um, we're kind of getting into it because you mentioned as a historian, you're telling a religious history, but in order mm. to tell the religious history properly, you cannot ignore the geopolitical framing and context, right? And so religion and politics um, in this particular historical case take on interesting, uh, it has an interesting relationship. So I wanna scope out a little bit and ask, why is your book important? What do you hope people to take away from the book? And so maybe we can think of different audiences within the History Guild. Why do you think your book is important? And for, let's say, pastors on, in the audience, lay Asian American Christians who are listening to the seminary students who are, you know, who have a vocation to ministry, what do you think they should be taking away from your, your research? Yeah, I think this is a really good question. And I'll say first a caveat, which is that I'm really interested in what they take away from my book, <laughs> right? Do you know what I mean? There's a way in which the story kind of has a life of its own that goes beyond, I think, me. And I hopefully, really, if I did my job right as a historian, um, it's telling a story that goes beyond me, right? And anything that I even intended. Because I think that's how history is alive. I want people to have access to the story and to take away all these different dimensions, including the ones that I, I put the pieces together, but I want them to be able to take things that go beyond that too. So, um, you know, I'll be really interested to see, you know, what people take away from the reading. So that's, that's um, I'll say that first. And, um, but if there is, okay, so the different audiences, um, I'm pretty clear, at least in my guild, um, you know, what I want them to take away from the book, which is, you know, something that I've mentioned before, which is um, to really take this Pacific turn seriously, right? I think we're majorly overdue um, as historians of American religion um, from taking the Pacific seriously in our um, reconstruction of the past. And that absolutely then includes the, the centrality of you know, Asia Pacific as a concept and the history of American Orientalism, um, as well as Asian and Asian American actors, right? So that all of that, I'm looking forward to that becoming central to our thoughts about America's religious past, not ancillary <laughs> or kind may of your tribe increase. Note. May your tribe increase, <laughs> Helen. I think that's that's a that's an important uh, contribution your work and voice is making. I really appreciate that. And um, you know, even beyond American religious historians, when we think about history of Christianity in general, right? That's that right. kind of world Christianity paradigm, I think, is so important because we know already that, you know, the non-Western Christian world is really expanding at a rapid rate. And, and we're going to, we're going to, we're going to be really behind if we don't understand that the history of Christianity is global, right? So, and that includes 
a long history in Asia Pacific and um, also in Asian America. So um, I don't I don't want those stories to seem as if they're separate, right? The telling of Asia or Asian America and then history of Christianity is kind of separate. Um, off, sometimes they are seen as separate because Asia is thought of Asian religions, right? And Asian America, um, also this history of the Asian American social movement and um, kind of these kind of Marxist underpinnings to the Asian American social movement sometimes have occluded uh, religious narratives um, about Buddhism, you know, about Hinduism, but also about Christianity. Um, and so I, I would really like us to take a more complex understanding um, and view of the relationship between Christianity and Asia and Asian America. Um, okay, so that's to the guild and to scholars. And I think that has a lot of implications for churches for Christians, everyday Christians in America, um, in Asia, around the world. Um, there's so many different implications. And I think, I think theologians and ministers may be better <laughs> equipped to answer the direct ap application questions. But if I were to, um, you know, just draw some kind of broad um, sketches, um, one thing that I have talked about in the book is that piety and politics are constantly intertwining. Even, even when we think that our piety and when we don't want our piety to intertwine with politics, we just see historically that inevitably it does, right? Because you're actors in the world. If you're going to go on a missions trip, you know, as a Korean immigrant congregation to Mexico, for instance. I mean, that's an action you're taking out in the world religiously, but it also has kind of political implications, right? So the piety and politics intertwining, I want us to be thoughtful about the inevitable commingling of piety and politics, <laughs> right? So what are the implications of our missionary work or what are the implications of our preaching right from the pulpit or our bible studies um how are what is what's what kind of social impact is this having what kind of political impact potentially is this having all the way up to electoral politics right um how is what we're teaching at church um how could that actually impact the way we think about even hard votes right kind of hard politics right um I think it's a matter of stewarding that relationship well, as opposed to kind of blinding ourselves into thinking that they're not related. And that's a core takeaway from my book because a lot of the story is it's so religiously bound. Um, but I think some of the historical actors may not have fully seen all of the implications of their work. Right, and so for us to be kind of more aware, and we can learn from um, these ancestors, if you will, um, to to learn to to realize that we're we're having our actions religiously are having tremendous um, kind of ripple effects, right? And so um, for religious ed educators, pastors, ministers to help steward that well, I think is is part of the work. Yeah, I think that. Part of what pastors and leaders in ministry, part of what they do is to, is to tell the story of God, but not abstractly. It's to tell the story of God in the midst of their lives and their communities' lives. Mm -hmm. 
-hmm. And so part of the task of the pastor is to be the storyteller. And so I think that's a natural connection with what you as a historian do. You're, you're trying to get um, different stories, different perspectives, different actors and agents out there and to, to tell kind of sometimes an alternative script um, given the guild dynamics. And this has really significant um, implications for how ordinary Asian American Christians understand sort of their origins and its complexity vis-a-vis um, -vis Korea and the US. Like many, I would assume many Korean Americans have some type of connection to the Korean War. They know this in their family. Their grandfather you know, has shrapnel from an explosion because of their involvement in the Korean War. But to understand what else is going on at a broader scale is really helpful for understanding how complicated their faith and their immigration status and their the politics they're in, um, how all of this come combined together, which is a really important part of why I wanted to talk with you. Helen, this has just been a, a fantastic conversation. I've learned so much. I appreciate your research and just you're taking some time to spend with me. And um, I hope, oops, sorry about that. I hope that you and I can continue to be in conversation. Yeah, thank you so much, David. I really appreciate this conversation. And I just to your last point, I will say that, yeah, I mean, I think this story just as a takeaway is it's telling the power and the fervor of revival among Korean Christians in general and missionaries, but also highlighting for Asian American Christians in general and Asian American evangelicals in particular, that there are ongoing transnational connections to think about and think through. And um, that those transnational connections are forged religiously, but there's also these political dimensions to them. And something that I also talk about in the book, I will say, is just the power of war informing kind of our religions. And it's really important for Asian American Christians, I think, to think about how past wars and ongoing wars uh, on the ongoing U.S. militarization of Asia, all the, how that's also forming us locally, right? I think that that I just I feel as though Asian American Christians are being really active right now with everything that's going on in the country with Stop AAPI Hate and um, and all of the terrible kind of racial politics in America today. But um, it's also important for us to think about how those moments are transnationally connected right, to wars in Asia. And um, I would love for us to think about that um, together. Well, that's, okay. a, a really, that's a really good note to conclude our conversation. Thank you so much, Helen. Yeah, thank you. We here at the Center for Asian American Christianity at Princeton Theological Seminary invite you to join in the ongoing dialogue on Asian American faith, identity, social engagement and ministry through our newsletter, blog, and upcoming conferences at ltiaa.com. <laughs>